Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Hebrews chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 4, okay? Verse 4. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Having become as much better than the angels, this Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, and today I have begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him, Jesus. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us here. I pray in the midst of whatever has been going on in our weekends or our weeks, Lord, I pray that you would move those distractions away for a short time and allow us just to wrestle with you. Uh, Father, I pray that your uh, spirit would come, that you would challenge us, that you'd convict us, that you'd speak to us, that you'd lead us into what you see fit this morning. Lord, may my words be yours, and may you use me however you see fit, Lord, and may this time be yours. Lord, we ask you these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I've told some of you guys this before, but I'll tell you guys, I'm a giant fan of Jimmy Fallon and The Tonight Show. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys uh, are avid watchers, a fan, my wife would probably tell you it's not the appropriate word for my relationship with Jimmy. Man crush might be a little bit more accurate as to the way I feel. I just think he's incredibly talented. I, I, I love zoning in for a lot of the different things that are going on. So whether it's a thank you note segment or whatever it is through the week, I love a lot of the bits that he does. But one of my favorites is one that he does very infrequently. You may not necessarily have caught it as much, but it's a segment that he entitles In Reply To. So some of you guys may know this, but essentially what he does is he shows a tweet from a celebrity and then asks the question, what was that tweet in reply to? Now, of course, he's going to make these up, but let me kind of show you how this works because I absolutely love it, all right? Uh, here's a tweet from Barack Obama uh, who said or tweeted, uh, it's a desperate group of people trying to get our attention, but we must do our best to ignore them. So you may see that tweet in, in your feed and you may wonder, hey, what was that in reply to? In which case, Jimmy creatively makes one up like this. Uh, he was responding to a tweet in which someone said, describe dancing with the stars, all right? You get, you get this how this works now, all right? Let me give you another one, all right? Vladimir Putin, who he always loves to go after, uh, tweeted, a walk among the tombstones. Now the question is, what was that in reply to, you may ask? I'm glad you asked. It was this, describe your perfect first date, all right? <laughs> You're getting the hang of this now, all right? Here's my favorite one, and the last one I'll give you guys this morning, Uber tweeted, you simply get into the car of a stranger and they take you to your final destination. And the question is, what was that in reply to? You may ask. Glad you asked. It was to this, describe a murder. <laughs> I absolutely love that segment. And I don't know if you've ever kind of been in your Bibles, now watch the transition, okay? I don't know if you've ever been in your Bibles and you thought, what? Why is the writer ever writing that? It makes no sense to me, all right? Really, as we jump into our passage this morning in Hebrews 1, verse 4, verse 4 really is the summary statement of this entire passage in which the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This entire passage is going to be the author arguing that Jesus is better than angels, now, the question you may ask, and the question you may be wondering is, what was that in reply to? Because for all of us, we probably go, yeah, I, I never once thought that the angels were better than Jesus. Right? I'm not really confused by that, especially when you and I typically view angels in this kind of weird way, right? For whatever reason, this is typically, when we think of angels, this is typically what we think of small little infant toddlers, right? With like ducks and like they're ready for an Easter egg hunt. I don't know what's going on with little disproportionately small wings that will take them nowhere. This is typically what we think of with angels, okay? But in reality, our Bible and actually the audience of the book of Hebrews actually pictured 
uh, it, uh, angels more in this kind of way, right? With wings that can actually take you somewhere with a, a kind of a warrior-like presence, something that was actually intimidating. Or if you want a girl angel, here you go. One like this. I don't know what's going on with the giant wings and a sword, but at least when we look at angels from our Bible, that's way more of the picture of what we see than really this kind of idea of weird little baby angels with wings that can take them nowhere. And so for you and I, that's probably why we've never thought that angels are that big of a deal that we should be intimidated. And yet what's really ironic to me is that the audience of the book of Hebrews that this book is being written to frankly has a more accurate picture of angels than you and I. Despite that accuracy, they're going to have a response to angels though that is very, very off. Uh, It's hard to see this from the passage, but this passage is being written in reply to a tendency that this audience had to worship angels. They had a tendency in their culture, in their community, to so revere angels, to loft them so much on a pedestal that they actually had a tendency to worship angels. Now, you and I don't necessarily worship angels in our lives. We don't necessarily kind of drift in that direction. But whether it's the worship of angels or the worship of something else, really, it is the worship of something other than God that the Bible often refers to as idolatry. And for the uh, audience here in the book of Hebrews, their idolatry was a worship of angels because angels were not God. They were lesser than God. And so their idolatry was the worship of something lesser than God. Now for you and I, we don't necessarily worship angels, but I know for every single one of us, we have a tendency to worship something that is lesser than God. We have a tendency to loft things sometimes on parallel with or on par with, or sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, even above God in that place of our hearts and our minds for worship. And it's going to be to that idea that the writer of Hebrews will write even to you and I to make the argument that Jesus is better than angels and frankly, Jesus is better than whatever idol you have in your life or whatever it is that you attribute worship to that is frankly lesser than God. One of my favorite quotes comes from John Calvin and John Calvin said this about idolatry. He said that every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. That it is our instinct, it is our habit, it is our human tendency to worship something that is lesser than God. So the natural question is, what is your idols? What are your idols? Idols aren't necessarily little statutes that we bow before anymore. Sometimes they're much harder to identify and they're much harder to trace and find in our lives. Which is why I love this quote from a guy named Thomas Owen who says this, One has a God when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. How do you know you have an idol? When there's something that's of a finite value that you worship and you adore it and that if it were removed, all of life would collapse. Or that in its absence, you can't receive anything in life joyfully. If there's one appropriate idol in our lives, it's caffeine and coffee, right? If you took the church or you took our lives and removed coffee, then there's really nothing we can experience joyfully in life whatsoever. But that's an appropriate idol. It's natural, all right? We worship at Starbucks and at Mugwalls. That's where we go. Uh, But other than that, all right, every single one of us has some kind of idol in our life. Every single one of us has a drift to worshiping something that is lesser than God, putting it in an inappropriate place. And so this passage, though you and I don't necessarily worship angels, is as appropriate for us as it was for the audience at the time. And so as we kind of walk through this book, really, or this passage, what you're going to see is the the, uh, writer, the author making an argument that Jesus is better than angels, but you can actually abstract it to the idea that Jesus is better than idols, that Jesus is better than idols. And kind of as we walk through, the writer of Hebrews is going to give you and I two basic arguments for why Jesus is better than angels, 
or by abstract why he's better than any of our idols. And the first is this, that Jesus has a title that's unlike any other idol you and I have or angels themselves. Notice verse 4 again. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus having become as much better than the angels. Why is he better than the angels? Here's the first reason. Because he has inherited more excellent name than they. The superiority of Jesus over your idols or over angels is because of his name, that he has a better name. There's always great significance in names. I'll tell you guys, as we had our first kids and as our friends were having their first kids, I noticed there was all this hubbub or obsession with finding out names, right? There are like websites that are all about baby names and like statistically speaking, what kinds of names are popular and what kind of generation? It's crazy. Uh, We had a couple in our newlywed class when we were in Dallas that actually they argued vehemently about the name of their child, all right, while the child was in the womb. That argument had not actually been resolved to the point they got actually in the hospital in delivery. They were still arguing about the name. It got even more awkward when the baby had been born. The birth certificate needed to be written, and they still had not agreed upon a name. We lived with a family one time and had a girl and they were pregnant with a boy. And I remember them sitting us down as friends saying, hey, we want you guys to know the name of our child. They're always jokesters. And so they're always kind of pulling our leg. And so they actually told us, hey, we're going to name our child Canyon. And I was like, like the Grand Canyon, Canyon, like that kind of Canyon. Like, yeah. And then Marcy and I just started busting out laughing only to find out, no, that that really was the name that they're going to name their child. All right. So there's always significance in names, right? The significance in the name of Jesus is going to come out in verse five. Notice what the writer of Hebrews will say. Here's the significance of the name that Jesus has. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The name that Jesus gets is a name that no one else gets and that's son. Uh, the, the second half of verse five, and again, and I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Jesus gets a name unlike any other names and that's the name of son. What's the significance of being a son? Let me illustrate it for you guys. One of my idols, this misplace of worship is the Dallas Cowboys, all right? Um, now this is Jerry Jones on the left. This is Stephen Jones on the right. Stephen Jones is one of many sons of Jerry Jones, but he is the chosen son. He is the son who's not just in the likeness of his father, Jerry, but he's the son who will one day reign and hold and reign and rule over the Dallas Cowboys. He's the future hope for all of us Dallas Cowboys fans who've been suffering for two decades, okay? He's the hope, all right? But so I'm not trying to make the parallel that Jerry is God and Stephen is Jesus because that would be heretical and you wouldn't come back. But I like the illustration, okay? That there's a likeness between father and son. There's a sharing of the same nature. But to be son, to be the chosen favored son, means that you are going to rule. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying about this son, Jesus. In fact, the very first quote there in verse 5, You are my son, today I have begotten you, comes from Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 is a song in which the nation of Israel would sing as they coronated or as they crowned their, the king of the nation at the time. The second quote in verse 5, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me, comes from 2 Samuel 7, in which God is promising to David and to his sons thereafter that they will always have someone who will have the right to rule over the nation of Israel. Both of these quotes are being attributing to one to come who will reign and who will rule. The reason why Jesus is better than the angels, the reason why Jesus is better than any of your idols is because none of them created the world and none of them will rule the world to come. Only Jesus will. Which is why you get a picture not just of his title, but also of his task. Here's the second reason why Jesus is better than angels and why he's better than any of our idols. It's because of his task, of what he actually does. And the first task you're going to see in verse 6. Notice what the writer of Hebrews will do here. He says, And when Jesus again brings the firstborn in the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Do you notice what the writer of Hebrews just did to his audience? He said, Hey, remember the people that you tend to worship? 
Well, let me show you who they worship. (laughs) Why are you worshiping angels when the angels are worshiping God? Why have you chosen to worship a middleman? I don't know if any of you guys have ever been super excited about something showing up in the mail. Maybe it was your new Mac. Maybe it was a new iPhone. Maybe it was some kind of new gadget. Ga- gadget. I don't know what a gadget is. A gadget, all right? Or some kind of gizmo. That's kind of what I was trying to do there. Uh, some kind of gizmo or gadget or some kind of thing you're just super excited about. And it finally shows up in the mail. You've been waiting. You've been following the tracker thing on the UPS deal. And then Brown shows up. UPS man shows up at your doorstep. And there's such this overflow of excitement, passion, that some of you may have been inclined to hug and embrace the UPS man, right? What can Brown do for you? Well, he can deliver your greatest hopes and dreams, right? And just showed up on your doorstep. And so some of us have had this tendency, well, let's just brace, kiss, and embrace the UPS man. Maybe none of you have done that. But all of us have a tendency to sometimes embrace or worship nothing more than a middleman, which is what the angels were, which is what your idols are. Often we worship the gifts of God and we forget the giver of God. Maybe it's romance for you. The pursuit of a boyfriend or girlfriend or the maintaining and keeping of that boyfriend or girlfriend is kind of your thing, where your heart and your mind races and runs, and if that little thing is removed, all of life collapses down. Maybe for you it's academics. If your little 4.0 was uh, tainted and became a 3.8, oh God, help us all, right? Maybe it's academics for you, (laughs) maybe not. You're like, I'm just trying to keep a 2, Lord willing, right? That's you. Godspeed, we'll pray for you, all right? Maybe it's academics, maybe it's romance, maybe it's uh, affluence and money, maybe it's a summer opportunity, maybe it's a future. Whatever it is that your heart races after, whatever it is that you run after, that you think on, that you cannot get past, often that's where we find our heart gravitating and worshiping something that is lesser, something that is nothing more than the middleman. To that, you and I have an issue and a problem. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis when he says this about the tendency that God has to receive all of our worship. He says this, that God made us, that he made you and I, invented us as a man invents an engine. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself and he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. You and I have a tendency to worship the middleman, and when we do, we end up disappointed, we end up disillusioned, we end up empty, broken, and frustrated, grasping all the more for other middlemen that maybe they will satisfy. When the entire time we were designed to know and to worship and to walk with God, There is no substitute. There is no counterfeit opportunity that comes close to what he can do in our lives. So one of my first questions for you guys this morning is simply this. Do you know this God? Do you have a relationship with this God, with this Jesus, who is the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, and the heir of the world? And he didn't just create and walk away, but he's also the savior of the world that when we botched it, when we sinned and we stepped out of a relationship with him, he would move towards us in love to redeem us and restore us. Do you know that, Jesus? See, that's the center point of worship. That's the center point of our lives and the purpose of our lives. But what's really surprising to me as you walk through the story is not that Jesus' first task is to receive worship. For some of us, that may be a beginning spot where we need to start. But that's not the end spot. And for a lot of us, I think often, sometimes in what we might call the Christian bubble, worship is one of our favorite pastimes. And we assemble all the time for worship. In fact, sometimes we assemble in places that are just huge. 
And sometimes it's these symboling and these worship gatherings that confuses us as to the reality of the world because the second task that Jesus is going to have here, it might be way more surprising than the first. Notice what he says about the angels in verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. We often get a picture in the Old Testament of the angels being there involved in worship, but they weren't just there involved in that worship moment, but they were also dispatched and sent out. The writer of Hebrews will say that they were like winds, meaning they were on the move. And as they were on the move, they were like fire and that they were representatives and lights in the places that they were dispatched. And the second task you're going to see of this Jesus is not just that he receives worship, but that he dispatches representatives for him. That he dispatches representatives for him. What do these representatives do? What do these angels do? Notice verse 14 as the writer of Hebrews continues and wraps up this chapter. And he says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What do angels do? From the Old Testament, we see that they have a hand in the worship. They're there in Isaiah 6 as Isaiah comes into the very presence of God. We find also in the Old Testament that the angels are involved in spiritual battle, that they were out waging war against demons and darkness. That even in the book of Daniel, we're going to see that one of Daniel's prayers is hindered and delayed because the angels are actually so caught up in a battle, they couldn't come and get to Daniel in time. So there was a delay. And here it's really interesting, even as you look at uh, Hebrews, he's going to talk about the angels being dispatched as ministering spirits to render service to the sake of those who will inherit salvation. It's fascinating, the angels weren't just brought in for worship, but they were dispatched and sent out. Ironically and interestingly, are just the angels the only ones involved in worship and also dispatched? No, you and I are as well. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, verses 19 and 20, Jesus tells the disciples and he tells his church, go and make disciples of all nations until the end of the age. That the church was not meant to gather into a holy bunker and just worship all the time together and just love on each other and sing kumbaya, right? That's great. But the church and the angels as well were also called and dispatched out as servants and representatives for him in a world where his worship did not exist. The angels are sent out to establish worship where it did not exist, just like the church has been called to go out and establish worship where it does not exist. I'm going to give you guys a few statistics of what uh, is truly a Christian bubble that is potentially happening in our country and in our city, all right? Let me give you guys a few examples. There are 2.7 billion people who don't know Jesus Christ in our world, okay? Uh, of that 2.7 billion, there are about what we would call 7,000 unreached people groups, meaning groups who, culturally speaking, they have no biblical representative, they have no Bible, the church does not exist. Let me give you guys stats that are specifically more United States-based. In the U.S., we have one Christian worker for every 230 people. I would tell you those statistics are probably even more stark in the Bible Belt that you and I exist in, right? In the rest of the world, we have one worker for every 450,000 people. In the U.S., one for every 230. In the rest of the world, one for every 450,000 people. There is an assembling of resources and people in certain areas, and we tend to like to clump together. Uh, I am a little late to the game, but I uh, found uh, this week someone referred to it to, for me. I don't know if any of you guys have found the satirical online newspaper Mugdown.com. Fascinating read, all right? Uh, there are a couple uh, actually on the Christian bubble, if you guys noticed those. Uh, one uh, released just a couple weeks ago about the first breakaway. Student loses his breakaway tag, doubts his salvation, doubts whether he'll even be a Christian still, or how he'll even be known as a Christian, or whether he can even share the gospel because he doesn't have a breakaway tag, right? 
craziness, okay? Obviously being facetious and satirical. There was one uh, maybe a year ago or so in which the Christian bubble burst in Reed Arena. People were called in, right, uh, during a breakaway to help usher and clean up the mess, all right? But there's a clear bubble here at Texas A&M University. <laughs> Some of the statistics of our nation are very much true, if not more so right here at Texas A&M and at Blinn. So one of the things I want to say, one of the things I want to challenge you guys on this morning as we look at this passage is the angels were there in worship and they were there and dispatched to establish worship where it does not exist. And my question for you guys is, which of these two tasks do you like the most of Jesus? Do you like his receiving of worship and you're great with that? Or do you like his dispatching of servants and you like that? Which of, you, of these do you tend to drift to? I uh, read a uh, book this winter break uh, that actually the Deckers had, uh, one of our table hosts had encouraged me to read. It was a great read. But in it, it gave an illustration of uh, a man who worked at a sawmill. And as this man showed up at the sawmill, he noticed a giant log being carried. And what he noticed kind of grabbed his attention because there were 10 people on one end of the log and there was one person on the other end of the log. And it was like, well, <laughs> first of all, this doesn't seem like a appropriate distribution of people helping and as he looked at the situation, he naturally then moved to where there was one person at the end of the log because he knew there was a giant need. I think what is often happening in our country, what is often happening even here right in this local bubble, Christian bubble that we love and adore, are some great things. The bubble is wonderful for a lot of things. It's a great place to grow, to be introduced to Jesus Christ, to find community. And we uh, are looking for a spot sometimes in the bubble, and we love the bubble. Last Sunday, that whole charge about community was about finding a spot in the bubble. This Sunday, I'm going to try to push you out of the bubble. <laughs> I want to balance last Sunday with this Sunday. Because what you see really of the first task of Jesus is a bubble task. It's the reception of worship. But the second task is a out-of-the-bubble task. It's the dispatching of those in that worship moment to go out to where worship does not exist so that worship can be established where it does not exist of him who is the greatest. And as you think about some of your experiences, I want to challenge you in two really basic ways. And the first is this, that as you look at your spring semester, here's my hope and here's my prayer for you. And it's this, that you would straddle the church world and the campus world. That you would straddle the church world and the campus world. That you would have one foot, in a sense, in the bubble and you would have one foot, in a sense, out of the bubble. The Christian church, the Christian bubble, the Christian community is not necessarily only a bad thing. It's a great thing. A lot of great things happen there. You need to have a foot there. You need to have Christian friends who will call you forward. But that's not all you need. And sometimes we have a tendency to, to shut up shop and set up life in the bubble and become self-sufficient in the bubble and we never venture out. And sometimes when we're in some of these giant worship assemblies, it's, we begin to think that maybe the whole world is, is a church or the whole world knows Jesus Christ and we get insulated from really realizing the reality of what's outside of that setting. So, have a foot in the bubble and have a foot outside of the bubble. Uh, let me ask you guys this very simple question, especially if you know Jesus Christ, especially if you've kind of been involved in the bubble or in ministry or in churches before, and it's this. Do you have a set of relationships and friends who don't know Jesus Christ that you are establishing and pursuing? Not like you're going to drop off a gospel bullet, but you're just building relationships with people. Or has your whole relational world got so insulated in the bubble that you don't even have people outside of the bubble? That's a problem. That's not healthy. And maybe you might say that I, I just don't have time for anyone else outside of the bubble. Well, then maybe you need to reduce some of your Christian bubble activity. That sounds heretical maybe to you. <laughs> but it's not necessarily to do three Bible studies every single week. 
walk with the Lord, jump into a church, get involved, find a small group, and then get involved in the community as well. Sometimes the Christian bubble can suck us in to such an extent that we don't ever get out of it. Or for some of you guys, maybe your Christian bubble experience needs to be retasked in a way that it's not just about community and accountability, but there's an element of mission involved with it. Maybe you have a great group, maybe you have a great organization that you're a part of, but if it's just inwardly focused, then it's really missed the point, and it's just causing the bubble to grow and be more and more insulated. And so maybe you're in a small group, maybe you're in an organization, maybe you're an officer in an organization, and let me challenge you. Move that organization in such a way that they have a foot in the bubble and a foot outside of the bubble. That they have an impact on the campus and they have an impact in the community. Second challenge for you guys is not just to straddle those two worlds, but lastly, uh, that for some of you guys, I'm going to challenge you guys to switch up some of your ministry experiences. That it might be time to look at being stretched in some different ways. Uh, specifically, I'll tell you guys, there are a lot of things that are happening uh, in this community that are fantastic that I love. But there are two specific things that as I look at the Christian response to them, I see a complete lack of a response or a lack of gravity to them. And here are the two things. One is local and one is global. Locally, I see a drift away from fish camp of the Christian body. That everyone drifts to one option, thinking, and I've heard at times when someone drifts to fish camp, it's as if they've sold out. <laughs> Nothing could be farther from the truth, right? And so one of the things I want to challenge you guys is, is maybe you've done impact and you're looking at this summer, and you're looking at counselor applications, impact is great. I'm on the board for impact. I wholeheartedly believe in it. But if you're going to do something for the second or third time, it might be great to do something different that will stretch you in a different way, especially if certain things have a certain popularity and momentum to them that maybe you need to move to the other end of the log where there's not as much of a Christian representation. Fish camp is one of those. Applications are this week. Deadline is this week. It's a great spot for you to introduce people, freshmen, the person of Jesus Christ, you can do it in multiple of ways. And I'll tell you guys, I think, what if the church had more of a presence there? Second is this, overseas missions. I, uh, the willingness of people to move in that direction, I see a completely different breakdown of, uh, of local ministries, local camp opportunities, and overseas missions. And one of the things I want to challenge you guys too, camps are great, uh, fantastic. My wife was a giant camp person. But if you're looking at a third summer and you're going to maybe be doing the same job, Maybe look at a completely different experience this summer. Diversify your experiences. If I could map out for you what I would love to be an ideal summer, uh, series of summers for you in college, it would be this. One, uh, do a camp. Two, at some point do an internship. And three, at some point go overseas. Okay? But typically what I see happening often is a centering on and a repeating of just one of those. <laughs> just one of those. And my question for you is, does that begin to stretch you and are we beginning to move toward things that have a lot more popularity? And are we drifting in certain areas and we're not balancing ourselves out? Specifically men, I'm going to challenge you right now. The willingness of men to go overseas for a summer, the willingness of men to go overseas after graduation is completely lacking. For whatever reason, men say, ah, that's not for me. Ladies are there. Ladies are signing up. Right now, even as we look at our summer project application list, we have about 40 girls and we have about eight guys. All right. It's not just that guys are procrastinators, which we are, right? Uh, that's us. But for whatever reason, as I look at the Christian response to the needs of the world, I just see men not stepping up. And I want to challenge you guys, step up. Uh, it's between you and the Lord as to what the Lord has for you. Uh, but as you're looking at opportunities, if you've done something already, do something different. 
especially if we see much less of response to these other options when the need is huge and the need is great. In the United States, one worker for every 230 people. The rest of the world, one worker for every 450,000 people. (laughs) We are assembling on one end of the log, and we've got to rebalance. I want to challenge and push you guys on that a little bit. The bubble is wonderful. I'm not trying to say the bubble is bad. Please hear me not say that, okay? But if you've been there for a while, look at either moving your bubble group outside of the bubble, being really missional and how you meet and what you're about and your purposes, or look at finding some opportunities to really stretch your own self, be developed in some new ways and pursue some other opportunities. Uh, don't keep repeating the same thing summer after summer because you're not going to get these six weeks, these three-month summer, these three month summers for the rest of your life once you get back in a job. It's not going to be like that. So you have some real opportunity to use those and deploy those in really significant ways, which is why even for us, we talk about this point in time, our applications for our summer mission trips are happening right now. Uh, I, I don't think guilt is a way to motivate. I'm not doing that, but I want to challenge you. Just come before the Lord and ask the Lord, what is it you have for me? What is it you have for me? Be willing to open your hands and say, Lord, I want to go wherever you would call me and then let me hear what you have. That's a scary moment for us sometimes, whether it's world missions, whether whatever it is, whatever decision that we're looking at, I want to challenge you in whatever decision you're looking at, simply hold your hands open and say, Lord, wherever, however, whenever, whoever, I want to have a kind of faith, I want to have a kind of walk with you that it will be willing to pursue you in that kind of way. And if there's a need in certain areas, let me drift toward those. Let me help fill those spots. Uh, I, I want to challenge you guys to simply open your hands and say, Lord, hey, what is it you have for me? Uh, there's all kinds of great opportunities for you to grow from, and I hope to see a diversity in some of the opportunities that you guys jump into. Uh, I think it's amazing uh, some of the things that are there, amazing some of the opportunities you guys have, and it's such a unique time in your life. Because here's the deal. As we wrap up, here's what I want to say as we wrap up. I want you guys to notice the very last task that Jesus has that I think provides you a picture of the world to come. Verse 8, but of the Son, here's the third task that the Son, Jesus Christ, has. He says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, you have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. As the writer of Hebrews wraps up this section, the last task that we see of this person, Jesus Christ, is that he will rule, and he will rule universally. And he will rule over a kingdom that we will see in Revelation chapter 5 of men and women gathered from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A universal, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multicultural community. And our heartbeat as a church is that you guys would see that church being established throughout the world at some point in your college time to be stretched either cross-culturally or to be stretched even by getting on a plane and going somewhere. I want to challenge you guys as you look at your college time, diversify some of your ministry opportunities. Continue to be stretched in new ways. If you find yourself in a place going, this is comfortable. This isn't really a faith move for me. Step toward what's scarier and what seems to be a little bit more fearful. Often it's in the comfort that often I think the Lord is saying, let's, 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 let's be stretched in some new ways. And that's my heart for you guys. And whatever that looks like, and whatever step you take, all of them are good. Just diversify them a little bit, all right? Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for your greatness. I thank you for your glory. I thank you for your majesty. Father, I pray this morning, just as we open your word, as we jump in it, Lord, I thank you that we're reminded that Whatever idols that we have, whatever lesser loves we have, that you are infinitely worthy. That you are infinitely worthy of our entire lives. 
And so, Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, as we continue to jump on the early part of a spring semester, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to find a place that we would grow and that we would know you more. Uh, that we would find community, that we would be developed by that community, that we'd be developed in a ministry, that we would be challenged by the church, challenged by the people of God. I also pray, Lord, that you would allow us to find a place that we would be lights for you, that we would be like angels, like winds that are blown out and moved out, and that we would shine, that we'd be representatives of you on a campus and in a community and in a world. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to walk in wisdom, to trust you, uh, that all things are good, all things are from your hand. Lord, but as we, as we wrestle through opportunities, Lord, help us to walk in faith. Help us to uh, truly put them in your hands. And may you lead us as you see fit and what things look like. Stretch us, grow us, mold us more and more into your image, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, the rest of the morning is y'all's. Have a great time with table discussion time, and then uh, we'll uh, get cranking, all right? <clears throat>